welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I brought back Peter Merrick. Peter was previously on the podcast to discuss the concept of finding purpose after you're done working through mentorship as a means of keeping yourself engaged, stimulated, and again, feeling purposeful. Today on the show, though, I brought him back to talk about another dimension of how to basically find purpose after you've retired, and that's through philanthropy. And with that, here's my interview with Peter. Peter, thanks for joining me again. Thank you very much, Jason. Oh, it's a pleasure. Your uh, your first interview went very well and was very well received. So I thought I'd, uh, you know, we were chatting. I thought it would make uh, a good idea to expand upon finding meaning after you retire. So let's talk about philanthropy as a means of doing so. Tell me about your experience in this area. My experience in this area is people, when they start looking at philanthropy, what they're doing, Jason, is they're looking at what they've accumulated in their life. And that's not just money. It's also their experience. And hopefully they've gleaned wisdom. So a lot of people want to share that. And people who have means, they also want to uh, give. But the way they want to give is with purpose. And purpose is just finding something that they care about, something that's touched them in their lives. And they want to make a difference in people's lives. And that's really what philanthropy is. And one thing that people confuse with the word charity, in certain traditions, there's no such thing as charity. They call it justice. Meaning if you've done well on this planet, you have benefited from the society and the people who've come before you and also the society as you live. And it's your responsibility to give back. But you have the ability, if you can give, is you can act quicker than, let's say, a government or a committee. And this is something that a lot of people, as the baby boomers retire, who are the richest generation that's ever lived on the planet, they have ability to make a difference for the young generation of today and the generations to come. Interesting. I mean, personally held belief, I too agree that we all stand as shoulders of giants of those who came before and there's a need to give back to the communal pot, but not everybody feels that way. But I mean, th- those people self-select out. So let's talk about what the triggers are for their desire to do so. Um, I mean, I've seen everything from people who tithed 10% per year on purpose, like to, of course, on purpose, to associations, charities, uh, religious causes, whatever it is, to people who just get to a point where it was a goal down the road and now they're trying to realize it. To your experience, like what, what specifically happens with these people? What awakens them to the desire to do this? I believe what happens is life. And what I mean by that, Jason, what I've seen personally is, let's say someone's died, they've been really sick, a cause that they're really passionate about and they know that they can't do it by themselves and they have the means. I think what it comes down to is just one realization for people who really choose to give and they realize that one day they won't be here. They come to terms that one day they will not be walking this earth, they will die. And at that point, they start asking themselves a very introspective question. What has my purpose been? What will I be remembered for? How will I leave this earth after I'm gone? Will it be better? Will I have done my part to make the world better than I found it? And I believe it all comes down to the realization that you and I, if we're lucky, we're very lucky right now, we might get maybe 80 to 100 circuits around the sun. That's it. It's a blip in time. Mm -hmm. And what did we do and what did we leave during that blip? I mean, also to my experience, I've seen that especially when you're in the accumulation stage and especially when you're an entrepreneur, right? Like as an entrepreneur, you are putting out so many fires, you have your finger on so many buttons, like you are, you are just constantly consumed by the, by the benefit of your business. And then God willing, you get to the point where you have the, the privilege and the benefit of saying, I've made it. And I've gotten to the point where I've delegated a lot of responsibility away or I've sold the business or I've gotten to a point where I've, you know, I'm semi, I'm, I'm easing into retirement. And now I have time to do things other than worry about making this thing go right? They start looking at the rest of the world and and almost through the same kind of entrepreneurial lens of, you know, I was fixing problems through my business the entire, my entire career. I see a problem in the world. How do I fix that? 
right? Or how do I help fix that? Now, one question for you, I'm setting you up here because I've seen this happen. How much of this do you think is in some cases driven by the fact that I've seen countless people get to the point where they have, we show them what their kids are going to be left with. And they're just like, I don't want to leave them that kind of money. Right? Have you how, have you experienced that? And how much do you think, it, if you have, how much of the desire to give is also driven by the realization that, oh my God, I have, I'm going to have that much as an old man. This doesn't make sense. I believe that that answer is individual for every individual. And what mm -hmm. I what I've actually rely on is you were mentioning earlier that people rely on giants. And the greatest giant of giving who's lived in North America in, in recent times was Andrew Carnegie. He would mm -hmm. be worth close to $400 billion today if he lived. Now, he was not considered a very nice man while he was in business. However, three years before he sold his business and it was shown that he was the richest man on the planet, he wrote an essay. And this is an essay that I believe that the pledge, which Bill Gates and a lot of billionaires are making, where they're going to donate half their fortunes, have read. And this is on the internet. You can get it at a bookstore. You can order it online. And what the gospel of wealth is, and it's the essay that Andrew Carnegie wrote 1898. He did not sell his business until 1901. And in it, he talks about what his next stages are and the thought that he had actually put in. And what he actually did is he broke it down into three ways that you can give your money away for those who are really successful. And the first way is you can give it to family members. And what he had actually come to the understanding was when you give to family members, what you're trying to do is you're focusing on family pride and the pride of the mm -hmm. accumulator because you want them to you know, carry on your legacy. And he was fully against this. He felt that you should look at giving your clients enough, sorry, giving your, your offspring, your family enough that they'll be comfortable at the same time, not enough where they never have to be productive. And he used the example, or I'll use the example, you have two children. One happens to be a corporate lawyer in a very large firm who's a partner. And the other child is developmentally disabled. You give to different children based on their means and their need. And that's how he looked at it. But he said, the, the vast, if you've accumulated vast amounts of money or a fortune, it's your responsibility to give because it's just hubris and it's arrogance and it's hoping that your progeny will go and outshine you. And we've had countless cases where you and I have met children who came from very, very wealthy families whose parents actually gave them the money. And these kids, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're good kids. But when you can go out and buy a Porsche or a Ferrari and you don't have to work for it, you have no appreciation for it. There's a term called the bread of shame. And what that is, you cannot keep which you have not rightfully earned. And one of the things that all the studies have shown that I've read is if you were to look at three generations, the generation makes it, maybe yeah. the generation that maintains it. And then the third generation, the money is usually gone and they have to go back to work. So they call it shirt yeah. sleeves to shirt sleeves. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a well-known well -known issue. Um, I mean, lots to unpack there. I mean, first off, I think that, you know, one of the more prominent readers and, and people who've spoken out about the same thing that Carnegie did in his speech was Warren Buffett. He specifically wrote an essay or wrote an, an article years ago, or it was an interview, I can't remember exactly, that actually got Bill Gates thinking and led to the Gates Foundation. And what he said there echoed what, what Carnegie said specifically about two things. He said to reward your children with vast amounts of wealth where they never have to work and do anything is basically the amount, they've, they've already won the lottery of the womb. Why are you reinforcing that? And then the second point was, the advice was give them enough that they can do anything, not so much that they can't, that they don't have to do anything. So you don't want to, he basically referred to it as essentially in a lot of ways, and he, he poked at various dynastic fortunes where you know you get to the point of just sheer doing nothing. Let's call it the royal family. Like you, you basically, you, you know, you're rich and you have to do nothing other than maybe attend galas, right? Like, do you really want to put your to to do to destine your family's future to to basically become just creatures of leisure? 
maybe that's appealing to some, but not always, but definitely not appealing to those who typically made the money. And then the second point is about the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves phenomenon, which I totally have seen and believe in and, and get, and it's, it's, you know, I get it. You know, the first generation suffers to make it. The second generation probably was around for part of that ride and respects it and looks to build upon it. And the third one has known nothing but that life, right? So there's something about scarcity that makes us all hustle. And at least the knowledge of having lived in scarcity that makes us all hustle. And the last point I'll make on this is that I have been privileged enough to know individuals who are third generation of dynastic fortunes, if not fourth generations of dynastic fortunes. Well, let me take a step back. Well, we, anything that goes over multiple generations is dynastic. But basically, these people who base, whose, whose great grandfathers or great grandfathers were the first people who made the money. And now it's down to them. And I often think about, I've even asked them, like, I feel like you're probably under immense pressure to live up to that and or just not screw it up because of this known phenomenon. And at the end of the day, I asked, how, how is it possible or how does your family focus on doing that? And they said, you know, his exact one of the exact responses was, I basically uh, was not given anything. Said, so, yeah, all the basic, you know, vacations, food, shelter, education, all that. But if I wanted anything else, it was very clear that at a certain point, I have to go out and make my own way. And as for everything the business, the family had done, that wasn't mine. That was us. That was for us to nurture for future generations to enable the same amounts, the same luxuries that we have now. But it's not my wealth, and I have to contribute to that wealth. Otherwise, I'm never going to touch that wealth. And that sort of mentality is very different than a lot of the cases where I see it go wrong. Where simple examples that where I see it go wrong is the attitude of I grew up with nothing. It was terrible. I don't want my kids to go through that. And they just spoil them rotten. And then they get to a point, it's like, well, it's too late now because they're just going to spend every penny I leave them. And unfortunately, that's more common than not. Well, there's, Carnegie talks about the second way of giving wealth, and that's to give it after you're dead. And this is much of the planning that's actually happening today. And he, mm-hmm. made, a, he made an observation. He says, the person who chooses to give after they're gone, this person wouldn't have given it all because they they could have taken it, they would have. He compared yeah. the wealthy miser and the steer as only being a value to society when they're dead. And this is something which is a lot of people should think about. They should think about, do I want to see the fruits of my labor benefiting other people in the community, in society, while I'm alive? And that goes back to we were saying, which was purpose. And many people who do in their wills and say, I want to give to the cancer society. I want a park named after me. I want a hospital. These individuals, they're not doing it while they're alive. They say, take care of it when I'm gone. Well, no one, I don't know anybody who's actually come back from the dead. So in essence, how are they actually going to see the product of their work, how it's benefited the society as a whole? So number two for Carnegie is someone can actually give it away when they're gone. Before we get to number three, let's just talk about number two as a dimension. I wonder how much of that, I mean, I, I totally get the endowment effect. Like they've got it, they're afraid, maybe they're on some level afraid to give it up. And I, I understand that. But I often wonder how much of that is possibly due to poor communication through planning. And what I mean is, I'll, I'll give you a contrast. So in our process, we will basically not only you know do the financial plan with the normal projections, but we'll also do a what we call a minimum rate of return analysis or to see what the minimum rate of return they need is. But we'll typically stop at zero and say, okay, you know, can you retire and live the lifestyle you want and leave the estate you want and do everything you want to do, even if you made no money for the rest of your life. And you know, when I deal with a number of very affluent families, and I, the, and then a lot of times the answer is yes, right? And even even with that, there's times where we look at this and say, okay, if we just apply a two percent rate of return, you're basically going to leave behind this kind of money. And the response is sometimes, I don't want to leave that kind of money behind, right? So I think sometimes it's just has it been communicated. The scale of their wealth been communicated with them and has the concept of saying, okay, you have to understand that we can now bump this into two categories. You have your, your core wealth that is required to get you what you want out of life. Then you have your excess wealth, which basically between now and then, you can do whatever you want. You want to go on you know, 12 around the world cruises per year, like per month at a time, whatever it is. You got you want to blow it left, right, and center. That's your that's right. But if you talked about philanthropy in the past, right? Why don't we bring some of that to the future, sorry, to the present, and bring that to today, benefit from the tax reductions now, and start doing, why wait until you know, another 20, 30 years to do it? And I think I've had a, several conversations in that regard, and it's, it's a 50-50 split. Sometimes they're just not 
It's the first time they've, they've contemplated it and they're just not ready. Other times they're like, okay, let's, let's start looking at this. So I, I just wonder how often it comes down to, they haven't, been, they haven't really looked at the full scope of their wealth and fully come to understand the option set available to them. And unless you're well-informed and you're, and you're well-planned for, you don't want to have that insight necessarily. I fully agree with you. One of the concerns that a lot of people are having is this is in the last generation, maybe one generation before, really no one ever lived beyond 65. We've spoken about that before. Mm -hmm. So the big fear that a lot of people have is like, what's it like for 30 years not working? And that's- Or longer. Or longer. Like that's the reality of it. And that's a reasonable fear that people actually have. It's very reasonable. But again, there's certain people who have- that can give philanthropy in a number of ways. They can also give their time because what is money? It's a proxy for yourself. But the greatest philanthropy that people actually enjoy is actually seeing the benefit of their work. And that's number three of Carnegie's way of giving wealth, giving in a way that the the, uh, benefactor, the person making the contribution to causes that count, that they see the benefit and being mindful about it, not just writing a check, but actually really looking for causes and looking for something that's important to you and actually getting involved in it with both your time and your money. And many people, uh, wealthy individuals who are constantly hit up for money, because when you're giving money, you're creating a relationship. And when you're taking a gift, you're also Mm -hmm. creating a relationship. So that being said, choose something that's really important And I think it's a lot better for people once they narrow it down, Jason, which charity is important to them, then they're they're able to let everyone know that's my charity. That's what I give to. And like I have a friend who's very, very wealthy. He's worth a few hundred million dollars. And his charity is Ronald McDonald's house. He thinks that is the key. The great cause. And I know someone, they, they came to Canada and they came here as a Hungarian refugee. And they received a gift from the, one of our former prime ministers, uh, Brian Marooney, when he was a Hungarian refugee. And he went, he got into Canada because he was a student. So their pet passion, both him and his wife, were giving to universities across Canada, across France, and also in Eastern Europe, because that was something that he appreciated because that gave him freedom, that gave him opportunity, and that gave him life and had complete meaning to them. And everybody knew that if it was a university, they would give money to, but other causes, they really weren't that involved in because everybody knew what their passion was. But they had identified something they were passionate about. They felt it was important to give to the next generation knowledge, and knowledge was freedom because that really gives people the ability in North America, knowledge and hard work gives people in North America the opportunity to become very successful. I want to come back to what you said specifically about, you know, retirement being pretty much a new concept. And you're absolutely right. I think a lot of this, the limitations around thinking on this simply have to do with, you know, the boomers are really the first generation to look at a very high probability of making it to age 100. And, you know, their parents before them were the ones who really looked at the probability of making it far beyond 65. I mean, the what people don't realize is that the concept of a retirement age can largely be accredited to Otto von Bismarck when he was chancellor of Germany and he created the first state pension. But essentially, that pension was meant to pay for, to give you money because, at that age, because it was largely an agrarian and, or, or industrial society, your body was so broken, you couldn't work anymore, right? So you had no choice. It was either that or like you were, you were dead on the street. So that's, that's basically where, where it was pegged. The thing is that people don't realize about that is that at the time, very few people lived past 65. In fact, if you were to look at the gains in mortality we've had since then, the retirement, if we had shifted the retirement age with those gains, we would basically have a retirement age of 95 now. So this weird kind of change that happened through kind of an anchoring of age 65 and then all the planning that's happened with our industry in the last 100 years around the concept of enjoying retirement, which was a foreign concept to most people. The reality is, is that we're still very young into this frame of mind and the thinking about what happens at the tail end of this and what happens in terms of wealth transfers to people other than, other than yourself and your family is still a very new concept. I mean, Carnegie himself, as you said, it was like, it's only a little over a hundred years old. It takes a long 
time and multiple generations for ideas to take residence. The second piece I want to talk about was the identification of cause. I think that that is hugely valuable because usually in, in most people's lives, depending on whatever hardship or thing that they've seen, there's something that resonates with them. The one thing I do find is a challenge when talking to people about charitable giving is how much do you think there's a concept of almost charitable fatigue in the marketplace right now? I mean, every charity has gotten really good at basically having these massive events to, you know, rides to conquer whatever, races for whatever. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I get a charitable contribution request every other week these days. And I've spoken to many clients about this, affluent and otherwise, and a lot of times that kind of almost wears them down. Have you seen any of that? Like just the ones who don't identify the one cause feeling that they're doing a lot of small things and that's kind of enough. Have you, have you encountered that at all? I have. And that's getting back to the example of the Ronald McDonald's house, the individual who's very successful. He chose one cause and why he did it is uh, someone he knew who was very, very successful. He asked them, how do you deal with this? How do you deal that? People read about you in the paper. They discover you've given money to another charity because the only people actually reading who's giving in many cases happen to be other charities. Other charities, yeah. And that's why it's very important in the planning process. And, you know, Jason, you're a special type of planner because you're willing to go deep and ask those questions. Unfortunately, many people who say that they're a financial advisor, they might just be a stockbroker or an insurance agent, and they're not willing to do the comprehensive planning to say, what is important to you? And after you're gone, what do you want the world to be like? And what do you want to be remembered for? And most advisors haven't done that for themselves. So how can they expect Uh to ask someone else that fundamental question? And I love writing because it's a lot of introspection. And bringing someone through that introspective process where they have to look at their they're both the good and the bad in their life is very difficult. And for someone to be brave enough, if you're an advisor, to, to work with an individual through this, you will have had to do this yourself. And unfortunately, yep. many, ha- many advisors haven't. And it's incumbent for both the client and the advisor to be introspective and also responsibility for the client to look for an advisor if they don't have that skill set to help them. I have a joke that I often use. What do you call someone who finishes second last in medical school 10 years ago? A doctor. And you don't know. You're right. You don't know if that's your doctor. And many people who say, I have a financial advisor, I have an accountant, I have this. Other than the title that the person has, they don't know. Many of them just don't ask questions. I've gone into large companies where large financial firms where, you know, the brokers are told, this is what you sell. I remember two weeks before Brexit, sorry, uh, Briex, that gold company. That oh boy. Crashed, yeah. I remember there was a large, uh, one of the largest bank in Canada, their brokerage firm had it on the buy list and their brokers <sighs> were selling it like crazy. And these people here didn't even question it. They just did it. So a lot of people are talking about philanthropy. Now they're looking at it a way to, you know, start a conversation to make money. However, they, they really, other than just talk, those being talking points, they've never actually sat down and asked for themselves. So what I'm going to suggest to someone who's thinking about philanthropy is there are key people. And one thing that you and I have discovered in our city, there's probably about only 50 people who are really, really skilled, skilled at working with people who are really, really successful. And at the end, what usually happens is they seem to, the top people gravitate to those individuals. And within that group of people, there's a whole different uh, bunch of motives. And it's important for you to find someone who's done that introspection, who's actually lived a life, who can help guide the advisor. Now, many, you and I, you know, we're working stiffs. We're advisors to King. However, it's also incumbent on, uh, on us and our responsibility Tasks to be clear about what our motives are and for us mm-hmm. to find greater purpose and greater meaning. And in essence, if that means that uh, we might not have the great means, maybe we're also able to help people who've never asked those questions to help guide them towards questioning what they want. Because I know planning is important, but the most important thing is asking questions. Internal responses that come from within 
the individual. And then for us to bring our skill set and our learning of tax planning, investment planning foundations to help them realize what came from within, not being projected onto them. Because when you get, when an advisor says, oh, you should give to charity, you should do this, you know, that's being imposed on them to help them actually find that spark. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting, we should identify and, and discuss one important variable, which is understanding the potential conflicts of interest when you're getting advice on this, right? The obvious ones are the insurance-based strategies. There's obviously commission. But the less obvious one, and why I think a lot of advisors don't specifically talk to their clients about this, it's not just the fact that they maybe don't have experience in it, they haven't walked the path, they haven't done it before, they haven't explored it. It's also the fact that there is a conflict, right? And that conflict is that most investment advisors are basically compensated based on the assets you have invested with them. You, you know, I've actually sat behind people at conferences where someone will get up and talk about charitable giving. And, you know, you hear the response of, let me get this straight. You want me to tell my clients to pay me less by giving away their money? Not going to happen. And I've always had the very simple opinion that people aren't idiots. And if you start putting your values and needs ahead of theirs, they're going to figure it out. Not only are they going to figure it out, they're either going to figure it out or someone else is going to point it out and you're going to basically be in a position where you can't defend it. And the second you do that, you're first off, not acting as a fiduciary, you're not acting in the best interest. And frankly, it's you're opening the door for someone else who's being ethical to actually take that client away. So the reality is, is that for, for a lot of people who are in a position to advise people about charitable giving, they may by choice not do so because of the inherent conflict. So I would also say that if you're, if you have an interest in this sort of thing, and the only solution the advisor has for you is to set up maybe a donor advised fund so they can hold on and make, invest the assets, and then partial charitable distributions go, maybe they're, you know, they're not necessarily talking about the full gamut of options. And frankly, nothing wrong with donor advised funds, just they shouldn't be the, the assets being retained by the advisor should be not the priority of the conversation. Well, Stephen Covey said, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Bingo. So many, many advisors will sell. It depends on where they're coming from. Jason, I've been in the business 29 years and you've been in the business over 20. And we know one thing, it's the long-term strategy that is the only thing that works for the advisor to be successful. Because what, if any yep. short-term decisions that we make based on profit will come to haunt us. Yep. And I know that. So having really the fundamental questions is like you have to actually look at the long term. Now, I don't want to be discouraging about younger brokers, but they don't have that perspective. They don't have that maturity. They, they're looking at, I have to go and get assets under management. I have to sell. And they don't understand yep. these short term, let's say, product pushes are these little little conversations like, you know, let's talk, you can get more assets, you sell more insurance when you start talking about philanthropy. And it's not something that they realize that maybe it's a shortcoming of themselves. And, yeah. and when I was young, I hated hearing, you know, I, I would meet people and they say, you know, you're too young, you really don't know. You really haven't lived life. And I didn't realize what, because, you know, I was arrogant. I'm thinking, hey, I studied all this stuff. I know all this stuff. But I just, but I hadn't actually seen all this stuff. Yeah. I didn't see the resolution of what it was. And I just feel that is the tools of the next generation is uh, also for them to live life. And you brought up a very important point about that multi-generational families that you've worked with, that the younger people were told, other than your basic needs, you got to go out there and make it. And one mm -hmm. of what the parents are actually telling these people is you got to go out there and find your own way. You have to figure out what works for you, what doesn't, because each of us have unique abilities. And the purpose of, I believe, giving, and this is the way I give, to help people find those unique abilities and to enhance them. Enhance them. Some people mm -hmm. feel like they want to help people who are very sick. Mine are towards educating people and giving them the opportunity to make, you know, make a better life. Because I hope that one day, that they will pass it on. And that's, that's my personal motivation. And that's why, you know, this is why you teach, why you write, and why you mentor. Because you're hoping that people have been helpful to you to get you to where you are, because you and I were born yeah. just as little babies who were just sponges. And there were, we were fortunate that there were people who took an interest in us. And that's something that I believe 
the responsibility of an older individual who is successful. And I'll just share with you this. It always stuck in my mind. Carl Jung studied, you know, the stages of life. And he came up with two analogies. He says there's the morning of life, and that is where you're accumulating, you're building your ego. And the second half to be healthy is the afternoon and evening of life where you're deconstructing your ego and you're giving it all back. But this time when you're accumulating it, much of it is unconscious. And as you get older and you're deconstructing, giving away, it should be conscious. And the drive, the selfish drive of someone giving money is when I go, I want to have a smile on my face to know that I did the best I could to leave it well. It's like if you invite me to your house and I stay in your one of your spare room, your guest room, I'm going to make the bed. I'm going to make sure there's no toothpaste in the sink and I'm going to leave it as well as I found or even better because there's going to be other people that are going to be using it and it's respect to the society when I give and to the people in my life when I consciously deconstruct and I share both my wisdom while I'm alive and also, if we're fortunate enough, our resources to help the next generation do the same thing. And it's also giving a good example by giving. The best example anybody can give their children to give the next generation is to be a genuine, to be a genuine giver at the end of your life. That will go and have these people become conscious. And you talked about tenthing. I believe uh, giving to charity during your life is if you have children. If you have other people in your life, it is the best example because you're showing recognition to the people, to the community, to the society, to the history of both your family and also to your society by being someone who actively is inwardly directed, but outwardly focused on the environment and wanting to make it better or at least the same as they found. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting how we often tell clients that basically focusing on charity while they're alive is another wonderful way of making sure that those values are passed on to the next generation, specifically around things like share private foundations or donor advised funds. We talk about how something as simple as having an annual conversation about, oh, this, the fund or the, or the association has, or the fund or the foundation has X amount of dollars it has to distribute this year. We have discretion over causes we want to give it to. What's important to us? What do we want to do? And circling the children into that conversation. And I was reading a wonderful article on kitsis.com the other day about, um, it was written by their psychologist, and I forget who her name at this moment escapes me, but specifically talking about with very, very ultra affluent families as using charity as a tool for educating and giving purpose to the next generation. Because if these are people who've grown up in, you know, seen privilege and never had to work before, early on, you could give them tasks such as research assignments to not only not only pick a charity, but look into it and make sure you understand the underlying workings of the charity to ensure that, that is the money's gonna be appropriately used or that's where you want it to go. So there's it's a wonderful tool for not just teaching them charitable values, but also teaching responsibility. And it's overlooked too often as a means of kind of later stage parenting, in my opinion. I fully agree with you. And by you speaking about that, that brought up a a thought. I used to have a column and I unfortunately, people don't read papers anymore. So the paper doesn't exist. The last column I wanted to write because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, There was a community foundation, the Toronto Foundation, they had just received a hundred million dollar private foundation dowry. And the reason that was the reason that money was going to the community foundation from this private family is the parents had set up the foundation just before they left and they were hoping this was gonna bring the family together. It's sort of like someone's gonna say, I want the family cottage. Uh. And, <laughs> oh, you, know, you did it on purpose. You know the cottages are the single biggest point of conflict in the states, right? So, so, but I'm gonna. I I have a client who built this massive farm. It was his dream up in King City. It's massive. It's a, it's on 75 acres. It's got horses, everything. He wants it to last for several generations so his family will get together. And I truly believe that if you do it towards the end of your life showing charity to people like you don't invite people you don't help people who are going through difficulties and your kids see it if you don't give to 
charity, if you don't attend, let's say, your religious institution and you know have part of a community, just thinking that I'm going to put a Band-Aid on it and we're just going to create a foundation that they're going to show up. I'll give you an example. I knew someone who was very, very wealthy and their kid was very spoiled. So they just bought them a, a big store in California. And they said, well, he comes from a good family, a nice car too. He comes from a good family. He's going to like, you know, show up. He never showed up before, but now for this, he's going to show up. So what happened with that huge, I guess, foundation, it was like over a hundred million dollars. The family didn't work before, didn't work before the foundation was created. The parents thought, oh, this is a way to tie them together. And in essence, the only resolution is to find someone else to actually run it. So those conversations, yes, it's important that the advisor brings them up. However, nothing beats the client bringing it up to their family to actually do the work. And unfortunately, many people in the financial industry who call themselves planners want to do all the work too. I'll set it up. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then you can give money away. The mature person knows it's going to be a disaster. And if the client's not really going to do the work, then don't do it. And I'm going to give you an example. There was an individual, he's worth several billion dollars, and he was against Bill Gates going to like Zuckerberg and all these young billionaires. He was against it. Because he says at this stage in life, yeah, they have all this money, but it's like they haven't got into that process of because they're building. They're yep. building and they're not reflecting. They're at a certain stage of their life because Bill Gates got to the point where I remember before he started the Gates Foundation, he built like the biggest home in like around private islands. Yeah. Yeah. He built this massive thing. If he wanted, he had private planes, anything he wanted, he got to experience it. And then after he did it, he starts talking to all these young tech billionaires to like jump that stage that I went. And the thing is, and you and I know that I can go and read things. I can tell people things. However, unless I actually experience it and it's in my my muscles, I'm not going to fully get it or appreciate it. It might sound cool. And I want to share some many young entrepreneurs who do charity. To me, it's just a gimmick. Hey, every time that you uh, buy something from me, I'm going to you know, donate money or I'll, I'll give you the so, best example. I, I don't know. I, I, I so I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I'm not as cynical about that. I think that there's a different difference in generation. I, I do believe that the millennial generation has been, has been raised with more social consciousness than others have, and they want purpose. So that's sort of like for everything done, we're going to do something else. That's what gives them purpose. Now, the other angle of this, which I do agree with you on, is that there is a certain amount of Greenwash like greenwashing is a term used in social responsible investing when you just basically don't really care about it, but you just try to paint yourself that color. I'm fully willing to believe that there are more than a number of organizations that do it as lip service as opposed to actual, you know, driving focus of the people who are making those decisions. And this is where the skill set, for example, if I show up at a strawberry farm in July, I'm going to find strawberries, lots of them at the beginning of July, the end of June. And the thing is, with the discussions are important for financial advisors to have with their clients about this, so it's part of mine, but the client to make it enduring and something really positive, they also have to come that to themselves. Now, you're right. When you revisit the client every year, ask them that question. There should be a set a uh, bunch of questions that the client the client is asked the successful person what's happening what's important and readjust their planning and at a certain stage and i believe it's very age centric i find most people get really serious about the planning around 55 like this is when they realize that there's more days behind them than ahead of them they're probably the wealthiest they're going to be because they've got successful businesses, now they're planning their exit strategy. And this is where it's a pattern interruption in their lives. And that's when those conversations mean the most, because if a person has a child died, they have a spouse died, they get divorced, they have a bankruptcy, a whole variety of things, COVID, there's a pattern interruption in their lives. And many things that they wouldn't question before or be willing to go down that rabbit hole to ask questions. At that point, then the people are made are ready to make change, serious changes and giving philanthropy because we're talking about really 
wealthy people. The person has to come to it. It's not like we make philanthropists. We find them. We find people right. who generally want to do it. And in our society right now, we've spoken about it. There's greenwashing, that there's a lot of people out there that say, it's just cool. Let me go and donate a policy for a million dollar policy, but I'm going to get on the board because I yeah, made a no. donation. That's great. When you really dig deep into that, it's like, yeah, that's great. There's a benefit. You know, maybe a 30 year old person donated a million dollar policy and is paying $5,000 a year for it. And they got on the board. That person there, the giving isn't genuine. And that comes down mm -hmm. to finding something that comes from within, which is important. Like, for example, my father died of a brain tumor 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. My family gives to uh, brain cancer because that's something that means a lot to me and my family. Other people, it might be leukemia or it might be someone came from abusive home and they want to make sure that people have protection. It's something that has to come within. Now, one of the things that I find really important, and this is where the conversation comes by having a financial advisor or financial coach like yourself, is I've met so many people who said, I'd like to do it, but I don't feel successful enough or I don't feel I have the time. And I have to share with you a personal story. And it has to do with my father. My father was a, a chartered accountant and he worked, you know, sometimes 80, 90 hours a week during tax season. And I don't think I saw my father from January to June 15th. <laughs> I didn't see him there. Well, my father had, a, had a, a brain tumor and he wasn't able to work anymore. And he was always giving money to charities because he grew up in a family where that was very important. And I asked him, I said, Dad, what do you want to do right now? And he told me that these charities he'd been giving money to a lot during his life, he always felt that he wanted to donate his time and help them you know, with their books and whatever, but he never felt he was successful enough and he never felt he had the time to do it. And now when he was no longer working, he didn't have the time, nor did he have the faculty. And to me, mm -hmm. that always like stuck in my mind. And it's affected me in so many ways because I realized all those hours my father was working, and this is something many people can relate to, and the charity was giving. He was, his donations and, you know, his donations to me too by paying for school and, you know, you know trips and were, was a proxy for himself. And then by the time that he had the time, he wasn't able to do anything with it. So I think it's really important, and that's always struck me, is that you know the person should come to the understanding that the most precious asset they have is not their money, it's their time. And money, in a lot of cases, is a proxy to it. And if you can help people out, and at the same time, give of yourself and see the benefits I truly, truly believe it's the most wonderful thing. And I just want to share with you something that sticks in my mind because I was thinking about this yesterday about our conversation today. I was very fortunate in my uh, early days, probably back in the early 1990s, that uh, there was a, a two-day workshop put on by Dan Richards. Oh, yeah. It was, Dan, for those of who don't know who Dan Richards is, he helps advisors become better advisors. And he had this woman come up twice from Texas. And she had a really incredible business. And one thing that she pointed out is she said, you know, when she would sit down with these tycoons who had like oil wells and whatever, none of the advisors ever asked them, do you think about charity? And Is it Dodie Frost Crockett? You are a very smart man, well-read and well-learned because, yes, I saw her speak. There's Dodie. Yeah. I, Dodie, I saw her speak twice in the early 1990s, and that was, she was genuine about it. And you know how good she was? The fact that she was, she's either the greatest con person in the world or the most genuine advisor I ever heard. They invited her back twice by popular demand, they flew her from Texas to Toronto to speak. Yeah, she's one of my favorite um, speakers that, on, on the subject I've seen going way back. But uh, the thing, and, and honestly, it's 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 interesting too because she's not she's the greatest con. She's possibly the greatest networker I've ever seen in my life. 
Yes, she she runs these um, synergy groups. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. So anyway, I'll let you finish your point. Well, I think the most important thing is we talked about this and we've named it that to ask those questions. We hire a financial advisor, a wealth manager, or whatever. We're doing it really because we want to share the risk and have someone to share with. We are social beings and we like to discuss things that and decisions and things that we actually put in place, they have to come from within. The advantage of working with a skilled individual like yourself, Jason, is the fact is you have a set of skills. And one of those skills is you know to ask those questions. You know, you're not going to forget that on your checklist. No, by absolutely. Asking, by asking key questions, it will yeah. lead and someone who's ready to answer them. And again, some people are not ready to answer questions when you ask. It's time. And in essence, as time goes on and as life happens and as people rub against the world, they might become comfortable or be willing to walk down that doorway. And again, the skill sets that you bring through training is the ability to ask the important questions. And I think that, and I, not, not I think, I believe that is the key of an advisor is to be a coach, someone who is not so much invested in the answers of the individual. Of course, they might be because someone's, if they're going to manage $100 million, of course, they're going to be invested in it. At the same time, they're not invested in the individual coming to that terms. If I'm managing $100 million of someone's money, it doesn't matter. Like I'm not invested in that the person does charity or not because I don't want to impose it upon them. They have to come to it themselves. I might decide that I don't like this person because they're a greedy individual and they're not a nice person. It's corrosive to me. And that's a mature person speaking, right? Yeah. Because when you and I were young, we deal with people we didn't like. We didn't share our values. And as we get older, we understand that, that it's corrosive for us. It's like selling ourselves short. Yeah. Well, you get, you get to, luckily in business, you can get to a point where you no longer have to deal with people you don't like, which is always a lovely luxury to get to. But before we wrap up here, because we uh, we're running um, out of time here, let's talk about, from a business owner standpoint, let's just say that they've had a awakening due to our conversation. What are the first steps in engaging the right professionals or themselves and their family members in terms of getting started in this space? I'm going to suggest, and it's, a, it's out of copyright, that they lead two people. One is Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, and number two, Maimonides. He wrote mm. the eight levels of charity and used that as a starting point because this is going to cause the individual to sit and introspect. And actually, people who are much brighter than me spend a lot of time thinking about these things, and it's a great place to start going. I want to share with you just a quick story. There's an individual, his name's Chuck Finney. He created Duty Free. He's one of the partners. He gave away over a billion dollars secretly. And when he sold his 25% of, I, I, sorry, I think it was more than that, of Duty Free to El Saint Laurent. Am I pronouncing it right? Yves Saint Laurent, yeah. Yves Saint Laurent. When he sold his portion, he had to become public because he he, there was a book he, that he wrote, which was called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. He was on the Forbes 500 list, and he was only worth about maybe 2 or $3 million because back in 1984, he put all his money into an offshore charitable trust. And the rule was you couldn't ask who was giving the money. The issue was when he sold his company, the trust sold the company, it became public that he didn't actually own the company. It actually, he donated it all to a charitable trust that was giving money away. And before, well, to the step back, he had looked at people who were super wealthy, that he had been surrounded and they had no meaning in their lives. He saw them buy castles and things like that because he was rich enough to do that. What happened was he went to his lawyer who is also a very thoughtful person, who is his most trusted advisor. And he said, I want to find more meaning. And what the lawyer did is he gave him the gospel of wealth, and he gave him Maimonides' eight levels of charity. And he reflected on that. And he said, 
I want to give. And the highest levels, I just want to share with what the highest levels of giving according to Maimonides are. And this is something that we might, might want to end on. Mm-hmm. The highest level is to help another individual through uh, to start a business or to have a living by giving them a loan or going to partnerships so they can go and continue the chain. The second highest level of giving is that you don't know who you're giving to and they don't know who's giving to them. The third highest level of giving is I know who I'm giving, but they don't know who's giving to them. You know what the lowest levels of charity are? That those who can give who don't. And the second lowest level of charity is those who can give but choose not to give money for what they're capable of. Fair enough. So wise words, and hopefully that this uh, this conversation basically helps uh, lead to some more charitable giving for causes that matter out there. I'll also close on one story. It's a funny story that always sat in the back of my head. T. Boone Pickens, the uh, the old uh, oil magnet. And for people who want to read about a very interesting American oil man, you want to read that guy's story. But when he was approached about the giving pledge, about giving up 50% of his um, his wealth at the end of his life, and he was already, I think, in his 80s at the time, he started laughing on the phone and everybody on the other side was like, thinking, what's going on? He said something to the effect of, listen here, maybe you should catch up to my level first. And his point was that he'd already, while alive, given away more than 50% of everything he'd ever made. In fact, I think he'd, I think the way he said it was, I've given away more than I have. And I keep on doing it. So he was like, there was a man who was walking the walk. Like he wasn't waiting to, he wasn't waiting to the end of his life. Mind you, he was in his eighties, but he had basically given away more than he ever had. And, and you know, further that simple other example, uh, last I heard, I believe JK Rowling's no longer qualifies as a billionaire due to her charity. So as far as she's concerned, being on the Forbes list is, is something she shouldn't be on. So that is a fantastic way to look at things. So Peter, thank you again for a stimulating conversation. I hope this resonates with people and I hope it, uh, like I said, leads to some greater donations. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jason. And that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. If you enjoyed this podcast, as always, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or to visit your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 